I came out here wanting to learn how to grow food for my own curiosity and to feed myself and to see what that looked like and what it felt like. This was 100% the you know steepest learning curve I've ever dealt with in my life. But I also think that with anything where there's you know so many like varied techniques and there is no right answer, inevitably people do think they have the right answer and that they say, you know, I've been doing this for a while and like this is how you do it. And it's like, well, I also think there's there's merit in having no experience and having the blank slate and you can just say like, mm, I've got a feeling and what little I do know, I'm gonna like go with that and yeah, believing that like, you know, oh, you can't grow organic fruits. Like, well, why not? What are you talking about? Like, people have been growing fruit for millennia. Maybe you're just not thinking about it the right way. Yeah, human scale, human food, going to humans. That's, that's what's up. That's how it was happening. And that's how it will continue to happen. And the world doesn't need another conventional farm, period. It's not what the world needs. And I, personally, Peter Trieber Jr., do not want to participate in that type of farming. What is enough? Welcome to the Prefix Podcast, where the new voices in the culinary world share their stories in their own words. The show is produced and edited by me, Jordan Harrow, in Los Angeles, California. Farming is a primal human practice. When our nomadic ancestors realized we could spend less time hunting and instead choose to plant roots in the ground, our species demonstrated a preference for taking the time to foster community. If one person grows a crop, they could sell it to their neighbor, perhaps in exchange for money, who then is nourished with food, which they need to live. The math is simple. Repeat this process a few billion times over and communities become towns and towns become cities. Nevertheless, farming is undeniably a part of us. When I close my eyes and imagine the vision of a farm, I tend to favor an idealistic image. Abundant flora and fauna, a spectrum of colors, wheelbarrows, maybe a scarecrow, dogs, and a few happy farmers wearing overalls, tilling fertile soil, and watering their crops. But today's reality doesn't look like that. Look around at the many big cities that bloomed out from agricultural growth and eventually yielded to urbanization and the Industrial Revolution. And now even those early 20th century economies have fallen by the wayside to diversify jobs and other areas of human advancement such as tech, medicine, and finance, just to name a few. Today in America, a country built upon agriculture, hardly any small GMO-free farms remain. In 2019, there were 16,585 certified organic farms, a big jump from just over 10,000 in 2008. But compare that to 6.4 million total farms in 1910. Granted, it's impossible to truly compare these numbers based on sheer number of farms alone without factoring in total acreage and wind organic certifications to cold via legislation. But... My imagined image of bucolic bliss seems more or less like a fairy tale. What happened? To fully answer that question would require an entire podcast series in itself. I digress. Meet P. Treber Jr. He's an artist and farmer who left the hustle and bustle of Brooklyn, New York behind to build an organic produce farm from the ground up with his father, Peter Treber Sr., on the North Fork of Long Island. After eight years of hard work, he's turned Treber Farms into a successful enterprise, and while keeping everything organic, like farming should be. 
He's been fighting the good fight of growing beautiful produce as nature intended it. As you can imagine, his journey wasn't easy. And while he is certainly not the first person to leave a large city to become a farmer, he's the only example I know of who intertwines his love of visual art within his farming practices. Take a walk with Pete around the farm, and he'll regale you with stories of previous events hosted for art exhibits, artist-in-residence programs, and just good times in general. A sculptor himself, he also seems to be cultivating his own artistic vision to deepen his practices of feeding and nurturing others in a way that is distinctly human. He's a seeker, a self-actualizer, a lightning rod of community, and a unique individual who I'm proud to call a friend. I was fortunate to escape New York City to spend a day with Pete during the height of the Omicron variant surge last winter. The ensuing interview was recorded after the most bountiful lunch imaginable, every bit of it sourced from the farm, and I'm excited to share it with you. Let's listen in. Uh, my name is Peter Treber Jr., and I'm a farmer and an artist. I'd say my story begins somewhere in Brooklyn, New York City, uh, after college in 2010, 2011, with a degree in history and anthropology and real no clear roadmap, trail map of where to go next. I really enjoyed my time in college and I enjoyed the things I learned, especially when I stopped going to the business school and I got to you know, learn from professors and read things that really excited me, you know, anthropology and history. And it was Mesoamerican prehistory and modern Mexican history and a history of the American West. And uh, the most influential class was called the Anthropology of Art. And that really kind of rocked my world, thinking about art in native cultures and how you know we considered art, but it's really just these people's cultures, whether it's, you know, a, a rug that's handmade by the Kashkai or uh, just like a nomadic tribe or a mask or, you know, a cave painting. Any of these things really um, shifted my, my view about what is art and even just thinking about uh, visual art. And so anyway, I, I finished school and moved back to Long Island and then into Brooklyn and yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And eventually what I'd come to learn is, you know, through doing a lot of things that I didn't want to do, <laughs> learning what I didn't want to do, uh, was that I wanted an apprenticeship. I wanted to find someone who was doing something really uh, powerful and moving and really, you know, physical and that they were making something real. And it had to be creative, but... Yeah, when I was 21, 22, I, I couldn't articulate that. So I I made granola for Early Bird Foods, which has become a, uh, you know, a pretty long-standing granola company based out of Brooklyn. And I worked for this woman, Nikisha, and we made delicious granola. And, you know, I made the granola and mixed the granola and baked the granola. And um, that's sort of my first foray into food and being interested about food and recognizing at that time that food was going to be or becoming more important to people. You know, quality ingredients, handmade, local, uh, you know, things that people could root for. 
um, even in like a big city uh, like like New York. And then you know I worked at a shitty burger and hot dog place that was supposed to be fancy and really it was just a burger and hot dog place and you know and did all sorts of other odds and ends worked for a temp agency working at like a desk job you know you go and you interview you do like a typing test and they place you somewhere so that's what it was like after college and I took a road trip around the country and it was becoming more clear that I needed to do something creative and to keep learning. I think that was, that was another big part of it was I felt like by the time I graduated college, I'd gotten really good at learning, going to class, taking things in, thinking about them in my, in my own way. And then it's over and then you're done. Once you figure it out, once you crack the code of how to, how to do it all, you're then out in the world. And you either think about grad school or you don't, or if you study history, maybe you become a professor or a school teacher, or you, you know, go to law school. And I was just so uncertain about everything. I mean, I, I looked into some of those avenues, um, even so far as like visiting, you know, the new school and seeing, you know, learning about their sort of, you know, anthropological studies um, that were available post-grad and yeah, I was I was just so unsure, so I just kept kind of kicking the can down the road and uh, working wherever I could. And the last sort of serious internship job I had was in an advertising firm, and that was really the sort of the last straw as far as I thought it was going to be really creative. And you'd write copy and brainstorm and, you know, that real... TV version of advertising and it wasn't anything like that and I didn't really want to participate in it uh, I was lucky to kind of take one or two steps into what I ended up doing for the next four or five years which was working for a visual artist named Mac Primo and yeah I, I found that apprenticeship that I didn't know I wanted or needed and I saw his artwork one day and there's this big beautiful assemblage of old tools uh, built into their own sort of individual boxes, but all built into one bigger piece. And there was imagery behind them, and there was wax and paint and beautiful craftsmanship. And I just was so struck by that. I said, "Is this what someone does for a living? Is this some something that someone would be willing to teach me?" And I met him. You know, long story short, we started working together and we were thick as thieves for yeah, almost the better part of five years. And he taught me everything he knew about carpentry. And we made films, stop motion animation, live action. And he had his fine art career. And we were in this big, beautiful building called The Invisible Dog in Brooklyn that was filled with other brilliant creative types. And so you're just surrounded by that energy. And it was a beautiful community and it was a great place. I really... I really feel that I was reborn in a way in, into this creative world and it was everything I wanted and needed and it was really beautiful and everyone was so welcoming and willing to, to teach and to give me work, which was really the, the big part of that is I got to survive and live in Brooklyn and I did things that I really enjoyed and I was learning every day and 
yeah, I couldn't be more grateful for that. I, yeah, did that for yeah four and a half, five years. Then I got my own studio and my own work, and I started showing my own artwork. And uh, almost as soon as I got my own studio and all that, and doing freelance, building things for people, whether it was you know benches for your office space or a set for your weirdo art film, my father was retiring from. Uh, his career of being in the insurance business and decided to buy some land on the North Fork of Long Island where uh, my mom's family had been spending time, you know, since the early 1900s. And so, yeah, he bought some land and decided that in his uh, journey post-career, he would uh, start a farm. And yeah, just as soon as I was sort of riding high in Brooklyn and doing my thing and finding my way, uh, I also had this moment where I thought, my studio is really small. I can't really fit a sheet of plywood in here to to make things for people. And I'm borrowing Max space and I'm, you know, working after he's done. And I want to get an apartment closer to the studio and I can't afford that. And I liked my lifestyle and I got to travel and I got to go places and do things and enjoyed a, a, a you know, a really well-balanced life of, of fun and creativity. And I didn't know how to scale. That wasn't really like a, a word I would have used at the time, but uh, something that's used a lot in farming. And uh, I did not know how to scale my life to, to get a bigger studio, to get the better apartment and not sacrifice uh, the things that I really enjoyed most about that life. So I decided to leave Brooklyn in, uh, in 2016 and move to this brand new farm, uh, that my dad was starting. And he had, uh, I should mention he bought the land in 2014 and started cover cropping and doing all sorts of things. But I asked if I could come and join in this new venture, not knowing anything about what that would look like, you know, on so many levels, working with my dad and it being a family thing and, you know, working with a friend who's hired as the farm manager. I should back up a second and say that uh, I was also, while still in the city, thinking more about being outside every day. And that was something since I was a kid, I recognized as being something I need. I need to be outside and I love nature and I love Spent all my summers in the Adirondacks, hiking and canoeing, and uh, there was something about that that I that I needed while living in the city and you know these tiny little apartments and from apartment to subway car to to you know studio and certainly the Invisible Dog was not your average workplace. I mean it was far from it, but uh, the outside time is something I needed, and also the food I was eating while I was living in the city, uh, mostly consisted of pizza and beef jerky and the green juices I was getting from uh, Mr. Mellon on Fulton Street. I wanted to eat better and I wanted more of a balance in my life in that regard. And, you know, I was going out all the time and drinking plenty of beer and felt really tired and run down all the time. And I had some friends that were working on farms and I'd actually had an opportunity while my last year as a camp counselor to volunteer on a farm. Uh, I really started to fall in love with 
the idea of this lifestyle of being on the land, close to the land, and really, you know, with your food. It really stuck with me when I saw and participated in harvest of, you know, some beets and a few other root vegetables that we then took to a grill top and threw down a little bit of oil and grilled those vegetables. And we made a soup that afternoon as well. And that really resonated with me. And, you know, the people that were working on the farm were, you know, barefoot and and there seasonally, but they were living this uh, lifestyle that I really admired. The seed, if you will, of the farming was planted, you know, sometime in 2011 and actually even found an old notebook page from 2012 and it had a grocery list on it and it said yogurt, granola, you know, laundry detergent. And then at the end of it, it just said farm job, question mark. (laughs) And that was 2012. And so it was with me uh, after that point. And I kept thinking about it and, but I kept chugging along. And and again, I learned so much in Brooklyn that I'm, I'm grateful for, especially the, what I can do with my hands now and the creative problem solving and things that are so important to, to farming. Around that time, had my first taste of, of farming and visited some friends around some farms on the east end of Long Island and got to ride a tractor and enjoy the, the fruits of those, of those farms harvests. And so, yeah, it wasn't a, a totally foreign thing when I moved out here in 2016. It was brand new, all of it. What are we going to plant? Where do they get planted? How do you plant them? When do you plant them? All these things. What, yeah, what is my role in all of it? Yeah, it was starting from scratch. I came out here wanting to learn how to grow food for my own curiosity and to feed myself and to see what that looked like and what it felt like. What is it, yeah, going to feel and taste like to put a seed in you know a tray and transplant it or put it directly in the ground and nurture it and come back and see the whole process and then at the end you know share it with people and taste it and eat it and cook it and pickle it and all these things so that was where i came into it i wanted to learn for myself and i was super curious about it and uh i really did want to see where this project would go. I mean, my father had zero background in commercial agriculture. He always had incredible gardens growing up. And as we got older, me and my sisters, and you know, we lived in the suburbs of Nassau County in a little town called Seacliff. Shout out Seacliff. Uh, we always had a garden. And that's what my dad did when he came home from work is he took off his suit and got in the garden. He put on his ratty Grateful Dead t-shirt put on some music and was barefoot and he, you know we'd all spend time with him in there but that's where he uh relaxed after the work day he put down the briefcase and picked up the hoe so that was definitely with me my whole life but as we got older and as he got you know sort of sort of towards the end of his career you know he started he planted some fruit trees and he planted some raspberry canes and he uh started pickling things and uh, my mom got him uh, some honeybees one Christmas that he picked up in the spring the following year. Yeah, again, it wasn't like totally foreign. We won't, you know, both weren't working in skyscrapers in Manhattan, and there was some connection to the 
to the land and the ground and you know he hunts and we've always fished together and these things but yeah my my focus was was the food i wanted to to be closer to my food and dig in to all the the stuff that went with that and and that's you know planning what we're going to grow and where we're going to grow it and i mean there's so much god cover cropping and irrigation and oh we got to put in deer fencing because the we don't the deer will come and eat everything and uh, so that that first summer, you didn't really get to harvest a lot. You know, we we planted a lot of uh, perennial fruit. You know, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, apples, peaches, pears. Then you're you know laying irrigation and moving pipe to irrigate the orchard grass and all these things. And so that was really you know my first step in agriculture was like the not the growing part per se so i didn't necessarily know anything whatsoever about what i was getting into but it all seemed necessary and that there was a means to the end that we that we would get somewhere and that uh, we're laying the groundwork for what would be a fruit and vegetable farm and we ended up getting some chickens that year both you know meat birds broilers and egg layers and so got right into that which was all sorts of fun and you know we processed those meat birds that year which the first time and only time i'd seen a chicken get slaughtered up to that point i almost passed out so (laughs) there was some skepticism as to whether or not i would be okay with uh taking the lives uh of 30 chickens in a day or two. So <laughs> we uh, we did that. And actually that whole first slaughter coincided with the night of the 2016 election. So it was heavy. You know, we were performing some blood sacrifice. Didn't work what we were, <laughs> what we were hoping for. Uh, but we made it through it. Uh, the chickens didn't. But yeah, we we're just plugging along that year. And it was really hard. You know, my, my dad didn't have a totally clear vision of what he wanted. He threw out a lot of ideas, you know, 10 acres of vegetables, one acre of vegetables, fruit, more chickens, pigs. And they were all just ideas at the time. And none of it seemed impossible, but amount of work that was going on and that needed to be done to even get some ground ready to plant in quickly came into focus so we really really slogged it out that summer and grew what we could for ourselves you know some tomatoes here and there but you know we didn't have a greenhouse and the barns we had, we had moved into were chock full of other people's stuff and so we're cleaning those and fixing things and that's you know boys and girls farmers wear so many hats all of the hats you are putting out fires literally and figuratively depending on your situation you got to be you know a small engine mechanic a diesel mechanic irrigation expert refrigeration i mean so many different things in construction you know we we had to build a greenhouse so we could propagate our plants in the spring uh, and then also grow some crops in there and I, I knew how to build things. The manager at the time knew how to build things, but it's a 72 foot long structure by 30 feet wide. And 
basically buy a kit like an erector set and you know except it's giant and they're big steel pipes and they get dropped off in a couple of pallets and you gotta like read the binder full of directions and put this thing together and you're pounding posts in the ground and getting something to be square that's that big you know you think like okay you know start from here and you measure 72 feet that way and 30 feet that way and then you do the same thing again and then you measure diagonally and you're like well these are not square at all this is a rhombus and so you got to start again so there's a lot of things you have to do that isn't just you know harvesting i think a lot of folks including myself at the time i began didn't really think about how much goes into raising even just one crop and yeah it all you know kind of came into the viewfinder while i was doing that you know farming that first year and between working with my dad and the manager at the time it nearly made me quit that first year it was so hard and so wrought with yeah just like negativity and frustration and yeah i guess sort of a lack of direction you know like what are we doing you know what is the end goal here and we've heard so many things and yeah i nearly wanted to give it up but i did and I stuck it out, and I wanted to see it through with my dad. I really wanted to, to figure out. I believed in, in something good was going to come of us starting this farm. 2017 was the first year that I really sort of took over. Uh, that second year was when I stepped more into a, a leading role for the day-to-day operations of the farm. Yeah, we started planting some of the annual crops that we grow now, finished the greenhouse, kept raising egg-laying chickens, some meat birds, and we had our first garlic crop that that summer, and we started getting berries from our older canes that had been planted probably before I got here in 2015. So we had blackberries and raspberries, and there were some blueberries to pick. And then I had to find where those things were going. And that was, you know, something that I hadn't really thought about up until that point because I hadn't had to was, uh, okay, we plant a bunch of things and, oh, now there's things to harvest. And, well, what do you harvest into? And how do you keep them cool? Or for the, in the case of tomatoes, you don't keep them cool. You keep them out of the sun and dry and hopefully with a fan on them so the fruit flies don't get them. Uh, so, yeah, that was our first venture into selling things that looked like taking a flat of freshly picked berries to the local farm to table restaurant meeting the proprietor and letting her try some and she said okay yeah I'll, I'll i'll take that as many as you have every week for the whole season that was great that summer we ended up selling i don't know to 12 or 13 different restaurants and some were consistent and some weren't and i'm picking swiss chard leaves and I'm like i guess we, we spray these down and deliver them and you know put them in a crate and um yeah all these things that you have to consider when yeah taking something from the ground and wanting to get you know presented to somebody who's going to sensibly pay you u.s dollars for the thing you know trying to make it good and look good and uh i think you're, you're confident that it that it tastes good and all that but so yeah it was a wild summer i started pickling things and canning things and I was really obsessed with not wasting anything you know when you put so much time and effort into a place and a space and especially uh, plants and crops you really don't want to see anything end up in the compost pile and you really don't want to see 
berries, you know, left to, to rot on the, the cane or, you know, leaves wilting or anything like that or tomatoes dropping on the ground, which eventually you have to let go of because it's ridiculous to think that you'll get everything. But I do take pride in the little amount of waste that is produced on this farm. And I've had folks that have worked with us uh, who've been farming since they were 18 and they said this is the yeah, least wasteful farm they've ever worked on. So definitely take pride in that. We don't, uh, you know, grow 20% more of what we need just to have extra or to have a selection of like the most perfect market ready, you know, blemish free uh, fruits or vegetables. This was 100% the, you know, steepest learning curve I've ever dealt with in my life. Uh, yeah, like internalizing and learning so much about so many different things that all can affect what you're doing. You know, soil health and the amount of rain you're getting and how much you decide to irrigate and all the varieties that you grow. There's so much to it. But to, you know, course correct after you've, you know, fucked up, you just try and pinpoint one of those things that you might have screwed up and you say, oh man, you know, the color of the leaves is telling me that, you know, they didn't get enough water. You just take it in stride. And what's unique about farming, and I always compare it to, uh, you know, chefs in a restaurant, you know, you, you got service every day. And if you didn't like how a dish turned out last night, I mean, you can even tweak it during that service, but you know, the next day you can, you can have those notes in your mind or written down and say, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to salt it as much, or I'm going to, you know, brine it for longer. But with farming, you know, if a crop is shit, you know, if you didn't weed the garlic enough and, you know, you lose a whole row or the, the, the bulbs don't get to size, you, you, you got next year. And there's only so many seasons of growing in your lifetime. I think about that a lot. You want to get better, and you do, and you do. You you have to get better, or else you know you know you'll keep making the same mistakes and have nothing to show for it. But it's it's the greatest lesson in in, in patience, you know. And you have to you take it on the chin. These garlics are teeny tiny, and I don't think anybody wants to buy these or maybe they do or we have to sell it at a super discounted rate or figure out some value-added product to put them into but you just got to try again next year and and take note and maybe it's the spot where you grew them maybe you can do a better job preparing the soil or cultivate earlier or more often or time it better yeah so it's it's hard you know it's really hard to mess up and and get it right again the same year maybe you're doing lettuce greens or spinach or kale or something and yeah you can have multiple plantings, succession plantings and but even then you know like two weeks difference the weather's a little different it rains a little less it rains a little more that next crop that goes in the ground two weeks later it could be a thousand times better no aphids, you know, they're, they're not weakened by the, the cold weather or whatever, maybe, or too much rain, and they don't get any pest pressure, and they're perfect. I think diversifying, you know, not putting all of your, your proverbial eggs in one basket is super important, and being flexible and being, 
being kind with yourself. Don't, don't beat yourself up. I spent a lot of time the first couple of years of farming, um, giving myself a lot of grief and, um, beating myself up about the things that, that weren't perfect and didn't look perfect and were out of place. It was tough going from, you know, fine art where, uh, and production where someone tells you, you know, make it nice, make it perfect, make it exactly how I want it. And at that point, you know, you know, and you've, you've got that shorthand with whoever you're working with and you can do that and you can sand the edges the right way and space the screws two inches apart. It's yeah, it's been hard having that sort of that, uh, that mindset. And, uh, I'm not big on what we call that Zodiac signs, but I'm told it's a, it's a very Virgo attribute that I have. They're like wanting things to be very neat and orderly. And, you know, I like it a certain way. I am a certain way and I like things to look a certain way. And that's just how it is. So yeah, there's, there's an interesting balance there with the farming because you're not going to pull all the weeds. You're not going to beat all the bugs. You're not going to change the weather. So buckle up and enjoy the ride and yeah don't don't be so discouraged uh every time you fall flat on your face which is quite often when learning to farm and especially you know we took on a lot i mean we we grow on 14 acres and that's all you know all the fruit trees and the berries and then our garden our market garden is one acre and then we have the two tunnels that we grow in and then you know all the other bits of property to maintain the weed whacking the mowing all this stuff it's it's not just it's not so simple as to say that you know you're going out to the garden and that's what you're in charge of you know we're in charge of uh, stewarding a, a good good chunk of land we are farming on the north fork of long island which for all of you out there that's right next to the hamptons Hamptons with the capital H, where P. Diddy has his white party every year. So maybe you're familiar with that. But the North Fork is right north of that. I implore you to look at a map of Long Island and really just like New York City. I think that's important, especially if you live there, to know sort of what the surrounding area looks like. But Long Island is uh, about 120 miles long. I guess like 100 miles out from Brooklyn, there's a fork. It looks like a fish's tail. And it forks out, and there's two peninsulas, and there's the South Fork, which is the white sand, ocean beaches of the Hamptons, you know, and then it ends in Montauk Point. In between those two forks is the Peconic Bay and a few islands, including Shelter Island, the bigger one. And then you have the North Fork, which is another peninsula that sticks out towards the Atlantic, but it is, um, yeah, on the North Shore, and it is got the Long Island Sound to the north and the Peconic Bay to the south. It has this crazy maritime influence. It's a really uh, unique spot. It's it's yeah, it's steeped in agricultural tradition. When we say that out here, it's not just the land. I mean, people have been harvesting oysters and clams and scallops and uh, fishing these waters for well before the the white people came and settled. It's just like a very abundant place. There's just a lot to to live on out here and to and to eat. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, our farm, Treber Farms is, uh, yeah, about a hundred miles from a little over a hundred miles from New York city, which is crazy. Cause when people get off the highway, their first time out here, they're like, what is this place? It's so green. And a lot of folks who do spend more time out here, they talk about this feeling of, uh, relief 
when they get off the highway because if you if you take exit 71 uh, which i recommend um, you don't go the riverhead you end up on what we call the north road and you're just immediately in farmland the, the main agriculture on the north fork is sod farms which is just what it is it's grass they grow grass they cut it up into neat little like rolls or mats and they stack it up on pallets and yeah if you want an instant lawn you buy sod they come and they chop it up to the shape of your lawn and you you put it in and uh the rest of it is uh there's a lot of grapevines i think some of the oldest ones are probably like 45 maybe 50 years old at this point something like 45 vineyards on just this like 30 mile stretch of land that is the north fork from riverhead to orient point the rest is potatoes that's been a huge crop historically out here you know all sorts of other mixed agriculture uh there's a ton of like you know big commercial greenhouse operations that grow flowers year-round and commercial nurseries and then you have smaller family-run uh yeah like mixed agriculture which is what we're participating in and there's some folks that are around our size or you know a little bit bigger they've been around for you know much longer and then other folks that are just starting like us and another big crop the ducks there was like millions of ducks being raised and harvested on this part of Long Island, all the way up probably to like kind of like midway through the, the century. The potato farms and then, you know, all like the, the seafood stuff. Like, you know, I've seen really cool pictures of barrels of oysters on ice being, you know, put into train cars going back to New York City. You're on the Long Island Expressway for like an hour and a half and then boom, farmland. So it's um, it's really a stark difference to what you see on the, on the ride up. And yeah, it's surrounded by beaches. It's really... I'm sure there's maybe some places like this elsewhere in the world, but I think it's really unique. And it's also unique about growing out here on the North Fork is uh, the soil. The soil is incredibly rich and really perfect for growing. And the growing season is super long. I mean, anything you really want to grow, you can do it out here. I mean, we have all sorts of fruit trees, flowers, vegetables, and the growing zone that we're in is called um or is labeled 7a which is like a sub zone and that's all based on like your average lowest temperature in the winter time and to give you an idea like maine or parts of maine most of maine is like zone four which means like their average lowest temperature is zero degrees fahrenheit and ours is 32 uh, but we're also like 7a because of this maritime influence and weather that's happening even you know just west of here in Riverhead is not what's going to happen here and weather and patterns move super fast and it's not really indicative of like what's happening uh, anywhere else in the state or even like across the sound in Connecticut. It's very unique and yeah, the soil is just really tight for, for growing and that's because of the glaciers. Thank you to the glaciers. Appreciate that. From Riverhead to Orient Point, there's like one McDonald's, one Starbucks, and like a CVS and like a Walgreens. So like as far as big, oh, and there's Dunkin' Donuts. There's Dunkin' Donuts, which is sometimes nice. I think it's something to do with like the municipalities, you know, like the, the towns not allowing these things to come in. And it's all been sort of cordoned off to Riverhead, which is like, you know, 
basically like the end of the highway. It is the end of the highway. And that's where you get, you know, the big box stores. And yeah, it's really been kind of limited to there. And uh, it's incredible that this place is, yeah, kind of like some weird I don't know, time warp or like it's it's been missed by the masses for so long. And it is, yeah, it's still just like mostly farms and family businesses. And certainly that stuff is changing. And there's some people that are coming in and buying up bigger tracts of land and whatnot. But for the most part, I mean, it is, don't get me wrong, it is like vacation town and New York and expensive and all these things and it's difficult for young people to live in and whatnot but ultimately yeah it's um it's all about local and local businesses and we all go to each other's little markets and shows and support each other and sponsor each other's you know little league teams and christmas fundraising toy drives and coat drives and all these things yeah we're all kind of in it together and we're all trying to make our way out here and yeah it's really a beautiful thing that like people can still you know, have the the local cheese shop and the the barber shop and the local art gallery and the kitschy t-shirt store that says North Fork on it or something funny about being from Long Island. Again, things are changing, but yeah, it's really and people keep saying, oh, it's gonna become the Hamptons and this and that, and it's gonna change and it's changing too fast. I, I really don't think it is, you know. It doesn't happen overnight, and I don't think it will. And even those that have come in, and you know, again, don't get me wrong, we're, we're considered new out here. Like, if you didn't go to high school out here, you are not a local. But we, um, yeah, we're committed to this community, and I think we've done a really good job of ingratiating ourselves into this place, just doing everything we can to be positive in in this space ourselves, while supporting as many other people as we can, other farmers, other producers whatever it may be even if you think it's trending and it's cool and the north fork is happening and the new york times is writing about it and whatnot uh i think people come in and they they have those ideas and they have uh concepts you know that they want to open up out here the new whatever the new clothing store in greenport i think there there there's a harsh reality there that like it is not the Hamptons, <laughs> like there isn't that sort of money being spent and it's not, there isn't like the huge, you know, I don't even know what the numbers must be in the Hamptons as far as how big the populations grow. But up here, I mean, it's a steady trickle all summer and you get the summer people, but it's not booming, you know, it's not an explosion and people quickly find that it's hard to be out here in the wintertime and you can't be open 12 months out of the year. Or you really got to figure out how to do that if that's what you want. And so it's um it's not not happening too fast. I think, you know, you can want it to happen fast, but it's not. And, you know, I've learned a lot working at this business that I, I do want to exist 12 months out of the year because I don't want to be, I don't want to fall into that trap of let's make all of our money in 90 days between Memorial Day and Labor Day when the population booms because that is unsustainable on all fronts it's no way to live because you're distressed and then you make all this money. And then if you don't, it's a shame. And then you like limp into the next year because you know, you can't pay your bills or whatever. And so I think I've, I, I say it's, it's like a pretty interesting time to be on the North Fork because I'm not exactly sure what it wants to be. It's, it's going to continue in its agricultural traditions. That's not going away. But as far as who is the 
year-round population and where do those people want to eat and drink and who do they want to buy from. I think maybe that's changing a little bit, but it's not the $22 sandwich. That is not the way that we're going just yet. And I hope that's never where we go, but I don't think we all really know what that means just yet. So it's cool. It's cool to be out here now. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful place to be. One of the lowest points in this journey for us, honestly, maybe there was two. It was after that first year where the first manager that was hired here was let go. Like that December, December 2016, it just wasn't working out. You know, it was a lot of hard work. And again, I'm still trying to navigate working with my father and it's new for him and new for me. And now there's no manager and you know, he had the farming experience. And so yeah, that was a real low point like that winter. But there was also a lot of hope in that. Like, okay, like this person who's here, they're pretty negative, but we're going to move on. And it's Pete Sr. and it's Pete Jr. And we're going to figure this thing out. So there was still more more hope to come. And, you know, my dad trusted a lot in me to to have the vision and to and to trust that like I was going to work hard at it. Uh, which is incredible because I had no idea what I was doing. So thanks, Pop. Uh, and we made it through that. And then, you know, through 2017, I had my cousin, uh, Chris, who was a lawyer in L.A. and who needed a change of scenery, and my sister, Kelly. And she needed a change of scenery from Vermont. And then uh, our buddy Gardner, I guess, also needed a change of scenery. It came out, and we all, you know, kind of came together and worked all that whole summer and had a lot of fun and learned even more Remember that year, I somebody pretty sure it was Gardner left the uh, might have been me actually who knows <laughs> the uh, greenhouse door open in like October and we had like beautiful cherry tomatoes and we got our first like cold snap and it just like killed everything that was left in the greenhouse and I was like really upset about that but uh, that honestly like pales it's like a drop in the bucket at this point in this whole road and then another like the like the most difficult thing to date and this is like another low point and it's not like a single moment but like human resources like hiring the right people to work on the farm uh and this isn't news to like anyone in any industry like finding the right people to work with my experience is that uh with the farming is the work is really hard physically and the days are long and certain times of year are like way busier and way harder like the summer the height of the season than maybe the spring or the fall, but you really, you really got to buy in, you know, it's a lifestyle choice. It's not, you know, for me, it's, it's not something you clock in and clock out of. And you certainly can't instill that in someone else whose business it isn't, but you hope to impart some of that, like that love and care, uh, to the, the folks that you're working with. And yeah, in 2018, there was five of us, and we all live together. After that experience, you really understand like why reality TV works, <laughs> you know, like real world and all the stuff that I was, you know, raised watching on MTV. You're like, oh, I get it. Summertime, young people working really hard, trying to party as well. And, you know, people are like hooking up and you're just like, oh my God, this is this is nuts. Like the we, the wheels are going to fall off. And like a lot of it all did come to a head and like infighting and people 
being pissed at each other and this person won't won't talk to me and you know we all live in the same house and man it was just that uh that's really stuck with me as far as trauma goes and even like the first year with the the first manager and stuff like it's just these you know interpersonal relations and like the work that you're doing like you really just gotta you gotta buy in and you gotta be sold on the dream and like we just gotta get this stuff done and like i'm i'm tired you're tired it's hot out we're all hot nothing we can do about it we can like get up earlier you know if you guys want to get here at 6 a.m we could do that and maybe we will and so yeah i'd say those are those are far and away the hardest parts of the farm thinking about it now and talking about it like i i couldn't even tell you about like a failed crop or something because like that's just that doesn't have uh as big a big a big of an effect on me and my dad and everyone else involved as you know having you know one bad egg or a couple bad eggs or you know just negativity you don't need it the plants don't like it either you know you want to raise them in a in a loving environment lots of love a lot of you know the interviews i've listened to about farming and farmers one of the words that always comes up is you know scaling you know are you scaling up are you scaling down did you add five acres to your rotation and now you want to get back to the original two because it's too much and you've got the market for just what you can grow on the two and so why would you have five in that transition from 2016 2017 you know my dad was getting a lot of input from other people you know neighbors and you know a fellow farmer that he's like consulting with and he just had like a lot of input and and good on him to really like honestly be vulnerable and just like asking for help and asking people you know hey what do you think about this and you know i'm thinking about growing fruit how do you think i should go about doing it and he he put in the time and and asked a lot of questions but i also think that with anything where there's you know so many like varied techniques and there is no right answer inevitably people do think they have the right answer and that they say you know i've been doing this for a while and like this is how you do it and it's like well I also think there's there's merit in having no experience and having the blank slate. And you can just say, like, mm, I've got a feeling and what little I do know, I'm going to, like, go with that. And, yeah, believing that, like, you know, oh, you can't grow organic fruits. Like, well, why not? Like, what are you talking about? Like, people have been growing fruit for millennia. Maybe you're just not thinking about it the right way. What I'm getting at is that in, we had a moment you know, in the birth of this farm where we could have just maybe been more of a conventional farm, you know, because that's, you know, to a degree, a proven way of doing it. You know, you get the right tractors and the right equipment and you have 300 or a thousand foot rows or 500 foot rows and you, you cultivate and you till and you, you fertilize and you do all these things and you, you know, you kill all the weeds and you get fruits and vegetables. Like it's, it's an if then like if you do this then you get that and there's no denying that and you know you see it all around us i mean that's the the um preferred way of farming out here is you know on larger tracts of land with with equipment with machinery and there's even you know certified organic farms that do it that way but we had a choice and that was definitely a big moment for me and my father and i really believed i was like listen you know we 
right now, because we have the financial backing, we don't need to, you know, turn a profit tomorrow. We don't need to till up 10 acres and plant 10 acres. And the world doesn't need another conventional farm, period. It's not what the world needs. And I personally, Peter Treber Jr., do not want to participate in that type of farming. What the exact conversation, really it was probably just like, it was so many conversations, just like, so like every day, you know, my dad went, oh, but what about this? And I'm like, no. Oh, well, how about, no. Like, we're just going to stick with this. And like, I just need you to believe. And you know, that, that was, it's honestly been like years of those conversations because, you know, especially with the, the tree fruit and stuff, like the results aren't there. It takes years for these things to exist. And like, yeah, a tree gets sick and there's no fruit and like, another year and another year and another year. So it's hard to, you know, prove it, you know, to say, Hey pop, like, just trust me. Like we're going to do it this way. It might not look the best right now. And it's more work to do it by hand and it's more work to right now, but in the long run, it's going to be a huge payout and we're going to feel really good. And, you know, when I have my nieces and nephews come or, you know, my friend's kids or, you know, people's pets, whatever, when you go out into the field, I don't have to worry about anything. There's no chemicals. There's no like, we're like, oh, hey, don't touch that. <laughs> don't put don't put that in your mouth. That has something weird on it. We don't have to think about that. And, and I feel really good about the job we've done. And I don't have scientific notes, you know, or, or studies to prove, but like, it feels like the animals really like it here. And, you know, we've got populations of birds and bluebirds and there's fox that live nearby and you know it, it feels balanced it feels peaceful it feels um whole you know and we think about it that way. we think about it in the bigger picture and you know it's interesting because the people around us don't necessarily think that way and like they're in a system and it's not that they don't necessarily want to change but they're just like they're kind of stuck in a system like a lot of folks in agriculture in this country like you've subscribed to a certain system and you like you have to keep doing it because you have loans to pay and, you know, you got to do it next year and you got to like lease more land and all this stuff. So we're in the minority as far as how we go about doing our farming. And even when I talk to folks who have farmed in other ways uh, or their families do, they're like, well, you know, eventually you'll have to, you'll have to get the the, the bigger tractor and, and get the, the bigger rows going if you're really I'm like, well, but we're doing it <laughs> without that, you know, and like we're we're doing all right and you know year after year getting better and selling more and and doing more business and and you know layering different parts of the business and working with different people and and whatnot and yeah we're we're kicking ass and the and the, the land looks great so we do not use really big machinery we prepare all the land uh, or the the beds with you know shovels and a broad fork and we cover crop and we mulch we just opened up uh, another full acre to plant into and yeah we used uh, a disc to to chop that up but we're not gonna like do it again and again and again and again and plow it and disc it and plow it and disc it we we nurture the soil and you know as i'm sure other people say my farm manager says we are we are soil farmers we, this is all about taking care of the soil and that is like the most important part so yeah we made that decision uh, a number of years ago and um i do not regret it one bit. And I know my father doesn't either. I think working at this size and with the techniques, 
there's just a lot more, it's human scale. So it's more approachable. You know, you can have, you know, a quarter of an acre in your backyard or, you know, your grandparents' house or your neighbor's place or something. It's, it's more approachable. So while we're educating ourselves, I'd like to prove first to ourselves, but hopefully be an example to others that this style or technique, whatever you want to call it, approach to agriculture is sustainable. And what a lot of folks really want to know is like, yeah, can I, can I live off of this? You know, is this, you know, yeah, I know it's good for the environment, but uh, as a business, like if I'm going to, you know, maybe eventually quit my day job, you know, like, can I do it this way? And yeah, you, you can, you know, it's proven and not by our, our own example, you know, look at uh, Jean-Martin Fortier and Elliot Coleman. And, you know, those are like the two big uh, heavy hitters and like the market gardens and like the four season farming. Jean-Martin is in Quebec and Elliot Coleman's in Maine. So that's like way colder than here. And these dudes are growing four seasons, you know, 12 months out of the year and killing it and making incredible livings that way. And Frith Farm is another one. We just got their book. They're out, they're up in Maine. I think what's also important is that, you know, for those that aren't farming is that, yeah, these are more approachable. I'm a person you can come and talk to. And there's so much to be learned and so much to educate the consumer on that it's very overwhelming. It's like, oh, what does organic mean? What does sustainable mean? What does no-till? I, I, I just want to like do what's right by me and my family and eat well and, and yeah, maybe support my neighbor if, you know, if I live close enough. Working at the scale, you, you can know thy farmer. You really can. And I encourage people to go do that. You know, I, I was asked the other day, you know, like, how do you know if it's good? I'm like, well, like it or not, you just have to, you just have to ask. You just got to ask the person who's doing the growing. There's no real secret question you can ask, you know, that you get like a wink and a nod, like, no, it's, it's unsprayed. Don't worry about it. Um, you can, you know, answer those questions and be closer to food. And a lot of folks offer volunteering hours and tours. A big part of, you know, this scale of farming is, you know, when, COVID hit, if you're relying on some sort of like supply chain for your farm, if you're relying on your stuff going off the farm and, you know, way outside of your community, you weren't in great shape. And so if you're sort of like out of that central, you know, centralized commerce economy, you had it tough and might still have it that way. We were able to just service everyone around me. And we did well in that. And it felt good that people could come, they could order on our online store and come pick up. That was really empowering for us, you know, because that was, you know, that was 2020. And so that was, you know, our fourth season in, uh, in operation and, uh, like, you know, selling to, to the public and, it was hard and leading up to that and really wanted to reach more people and didn't want to be, you know, stuck in selling wholesale. And, you know, I, I really, it came to the point where I just, I wanted to feed people. And that's why I got in, you know, part of the reason I got into farming, I was like, I wanted to like feed my neighbors and it became clear right away that like, if we didn't have the farm stand or, 
the farmer's market, we wouldn't necessarily be able to do that. So that's why we got into wholesaling to restaurants. But yeah, human scale, human food, going to humans. That's that's what's up. That's how it was happening. And that's how it will continue to happen. And there's all these articles that come out. So, well, you know, we'll small scale, no till farmings, you know, save the world. And can we feed people this way? And it's like, well, I think you can feed a lot of people. And if it's just like the community that you're around right now, that's pretty awesome. And hopefully it's just like a good example of what can be done on smaller plots of land. Maybe we get more people outside doing these things and understanding that what is enough, that can mean a lot of things. Like what is enough for you know, you to eat and you know, eating seasonally and all these things just for your, your like life, you know, what is enough to sustain you emotionally, spiritually, physically. And yeah, that's, that's what the, the smaller farms are all about. When I first moved out here, the art and the farming seemed like they needed to be two very separate things. I will be a farmer during the day and I will learn how to farm and that will be good and beautiful and fulfilling. And then at night when I'm home, I will, you know, work on collages and things like that. But since that point, especially after leaving the invisible dog and that beautiful community of, you know, 25 plus people always being around and doing all sorts of weird, kooky, beautiful things. Uh, and seeing all the space that we have out here, it was really soon after I moved out here that I felt the need to have some sort of continuation of that artistic community. And because it had given so much to me that I didn't, I didn't see any, any way of, of severing that part of my life. So I immediately started thinking like, how do I get artists out here? How do I open up this place? You know, this beautiful old barn and uh, really pretty much right away I had, you know, some people playing music at the farm. I had friends shooting um, some scenes for a movie on the farm. Yes, since then, I mean, we've had film screenings, all sorts of musicians come through, dinners and disco parties and dance performances you know we've started a small residency called cooler ranch like the dorito flavor y'all uh in partnership with cooler gallery out of brooklyn with my buddy michael yurinsky so slowly but surely uh organically if you will here on the farm we've built a a relationship with the arts that is it's all kind of seamless you know we have some bigger sculptures out in the field, some site-specific things, some wayward sculpture that needed a home after public art projects were done. I've been boasting that we have, I think we have four out of the five boroughs represented as far as like public art projects that needed a home. The Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and I don't think we have Queens. Oh, and Staten Island. We have a piece from Staten Island. Sometimes when I talk about it, it seems like we're, we're in a lot of different spaces, but it's all kind of just happened slowly but surely over the years it's really beautiful because the farm is and has historically been a a meeting place and a gathering place and a community hub and the barn dance and the the barn um the barn concert is not a new concept so um there was precedent there which is nice and 
uh, yeah, to have the space to open it up to, to folks. And I was so nervous when, you know, I had my first musicians come to play and all, all I really wanted was, well, one, I wanted people to show up, which was, that's a whole other challenge, but I just wanted them to enjoy playing in the barn. You know, I wanted it to sound good and to, to feel good. And if you come and play here, you know, I'm going to take you out into the field and we're going to like eat blackberries and you're going to have like a home cooked meal. And, uh, I know some folks have said, yeah, this is a far cry from like whatever shit bag bar that we're playing in and we're getting, you know, soggy French fries and mozzarella sticks. So it's really wonderful. And yeah, to have folks be able to come now and stay in this, at this place and in this space and like create artwork out in the field. You know, there's so many things that are in our lives that are derivative of agriculture, like the clothes you wear and the colors that make those clothes unique. And, um, you know, the beer you drink and the spirits you enjoy. And, you know, there's, there's so much to it. And so we, we've been working with our friend Cara Marie Piazza, who is a wonderful natural dye artist. And that is her, uh, profession and and her art and so we grew a bunch of flowers dye flowers for her and I mean that is incredible I mean to to make a dye bath out of these beautiful flowers that are that are feeding you in so many ways I mean just like the color palette but then you know you're transforming a a piece of fabric into you know like this incredible colorscape I mean these like wearable pieces of artwork is incredible and we've grown indigo and you know, I've used some of that stuff in my, in my own work and it, it's really incredible. And, you know, working with herbalists and really it seems endless, you know, the, the collaborations you can make. And, uh, for me on uh, a personal artistic note, I went from thinking that it is two separate things, you know, the art and the farming to something, um, there is no difference for me. It's, it's all part of the same lifestyle and worldview and how I, see my life I'm really just kind of like a change of attitude and perception. I found something to do with my life that is not only my, my job, my career and a passion, but uh, it is, you know, the ultimate creative expression. You are sculpting the land and it's long-term and it's short-term and there's, you know, immediate results and there's uh, results that'll take, you know, basically a lifetime to, to see you know, you're engaging all five senses. I mean, it's incredible. The flavors, the colors, you know, you're eating a carrot and you're looking at a bald eagle and then the sun is setting and like the birds are chirping and you're, you're experiencing so much. And that's, that's, yeah, it's the ultimate. I mean, I couldn't have asked for, for anything better. I mean, making collages is cool and like putting them in a frame on a, on a wall in a gallery, but I'm really, digging into into all all that I just mentioned, all those feelings about about the farming and it is it is my artwork now and and you know I want the field to be a like a non-traditional gallery space and it will be and it is. But when I had a solo exhibition um as part of like a called the four rooms show and so each room in this gallery had four different artists and uh, I was lucky enough to participate, and everything I had in that room was uh, speaking to my life on the farm, every bit of it. You know, I had spirits in this log that I carved out. It's like a really cool chest that I made from some, some driftwood, and I put three bottles of spirits that were distilled with things that I grew on the farm. 
I dyed some ropes that I turned into jump ropes that I hung, and one was marigold and one was indigo, and that's all from the farm. And a corncob pipe from corn that I grew on the farm, and then like some tobacco that went with the pipe, and you know, a collection of straw hats, and all of it was here. All of it was from here and from me, and it was, I think, the the best representation of of me and my work that's ever been presented. And you know, it's taken a while to like get there, but it really was uh, really powerful for me to put all those works together in a room, and it just felt so yeah rich in who I am and what I do. And I think it really, I think it really came through. I think people came into that room, especially with what was being shown around me. Uh, that it, like really set itself apart, and I think you could you could really feel me and the farm and the land and everything in it. So it's all together now, the farming and the art, and it's it's all one. And yeah, I think there's there's so much to be done with it. It's really incredible. It seems uh, really sort of limitless possibilities of of being creative with myself and with others and getting other people out here doing their their best work. Yeah. Some of the continuous magic moments for me are always in collaboration with others. And to bring folks into our little community that might not have done so, like maybe the dye artist, like maybe she would have just kept buying flowers or maybe she would have eventually found a farm to work with. But, you know, like the local distillery, Matchbook Distilling Company, I mean, we... We've been working with them for several years now. And like that really gets me, collaborations really energize me. And to find a way, uh, yeah, maybe like maybe it's with Michael in the gallery where we grew broom corn for an art show that was called The Broom Show. And like 30 different artists made brooms. Artists and designers made brooms. Pretty much everyone used the broom corn that was provided. And that was all grown here. And the idea was like growing a show from seed. And how cool is that? Uh, or yeah, or working with um, seeing your crop go into someone's hands and they bring it home and eat it for dinner. Or like, you know, it goes to a restaurant and it ends up in a dish. But, you know, working with Matchbook Distilling Company, they do their magic and they take, you know, our lemongrass or our pumpkins or our, you know, honey nut squash or, or some flowers or some, some other herb. And it then ends up in a distilled spirit in a bottle with a really cool label. And it says, you know, you know, made with Treeper Farms, whatever it was. And you're like, whoa, that is, it's got this new life to it. And so that's really powerful stuff. But one moment that really hit me uh, as being overwhelmingly positive was this past spring, we had a show on the farm called Art Basil. That is uh, obviously a poke at Art Basil uh, in, is that how people say it? The one in Miami? Yeah, that was, yeah, in collaboration with VSOP Projects, my buddy Jonathan, and we were like out in the field working on these rose bushes, and we're like, oh, we should do something like fun and like do a show in the barn and something we'd like done before, but let's like really embrace this agriculture adjacent art, art adjacent agriculture sort of thought and feeling. And I was like, well, let's just, you know, poke a little fun at art, art basil, art basil. And do our own thing and call it Art Basil and actually, like, sell. We sold, I think, like, five different varieties of basil plants, like, from, like, really tiny, like, just two true leaves to slightly bigger 
versions of themselves, like a little more established. And then, uh, you know, I made like three or four different types of vinegars. So there's like, and then we had the farm stand open and we had a, uh, herbalist slash like tarot reader. And then we had art. I mean, we had like, we, he commissioned some paintings that were some like odes to like John Baldessari. And so, you know, there's some sort of food related things there. And I did some spore prints with mushrooms on big pieces of paper that were framed. And like, this is a piece of artwork, but this is, you know, mushrooms that were, you know, foraged on the farm and all these vessels and, you know, these prints. And my mother did some like oil paintings of like tomatoes and other things. This really cool artist in Brooklyn uh, named Betty Rubble, who does like kind of food centric, kind of like paintings on rocks and stuff. So it's like, oh, this piece of concrete she found looks like a box of Wheaties because um, she painted it that way. And so what I'm getting at is that that was a good mix of all those things that I love and hold dear, which is the farming and the art and being creative. But it was the first event post-vaccination, post-COVID, and it was in the barn, and it was a beautiful, it was the weekend before Memorial Day, it was a beautiful, like, first nice weekend, and everyone came. I mean, like, all of our local artist friends, other farmers, um, people we didn't know, you know, new friends, old friends, and everybody was so happy, and everybody was so complimentary, because no one else is doing stuff like that, and... You can't appreciate it all the time when you're in it, but that moment was just really beautiful because people really appreciated it and they told you so. You know, they took the time to come and say, hey, like, this is great. We really appreciate this. Like, please keep doing things like this. And we will because that's what we want to do. And, and it feels good, you know, because... It's been years and and even I could even in that moment appreciate uh, the work that we had done, you know, that we had held true to ourselves and we could, yeah, we could, you know, take a moment and pat ourselves on the back and say like, hey, this is, this is good. This feels good. Everyone else feels good about this. We feel good about this. It's the farming. It's the arts. It's collaborative. It's all a hundred percent about the local community and our friends and family and get putting ourselves out there. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a big moment for, for me and, uh, and the farm this past May and, you know, plenty more to come. Thanks for listening, everyone for links and resources about everything discussed today. Please visit the show notes in the episode. For a deeper dive into this episode and all others in our archive, please visit our website, www.prefixpodcast.com. If you want to support the podcast, the most effective way to do so would be to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform that you're listening in from. Don't forget to leave us a review too, if you have the option to do so. Sharing the show with your friends on social media is always appreciated. Shout out to Sean Myers for creating the original music and to Jason Cryer for the graphical elements. The show is produced by Homecourt Pictures. You can always reach out to me at Jordan, H-A-R-0 on Instagram and Twitter. Follow the show at PrefixPod on Instagram or email us via 
prefixpodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate every second of your attention and support. See you in the next one.